Well, one of the benefits of teaching regularly in a local church is that after you preach one sermon and you think about that some more and you realize there's some more that you could have said, perhaps should have said, (laughs) usually you get to come back next week and try again. So this is going to be one of those weeks. Very rarely um, do we ever go back to then go forward, but that's what we're going to do this morning. You're all here on Labor Day weekend, and so I want you to get your money's worth out of this sermon, so you're going to get like one and a half. So uh, get excited. (laughs) Um, So I want to put last week's passage in front of us a little bit again, and then we'll go on into chapter two some as well. But to do that, I want to read um, all of chapter 1 from 2 Thessalonians and then the first 12 verses of chapter 2. Now, if you haven't been here with us at any point in the summer, that's okay. Um, What we've been doing is going through Paul's letters to this church in a city called Thessalonica. And we've been seeing what Paul had to say to that church that would then also speak to us as a church as well. And, and, and there's many things, actually. And so that's what we're continuing to do. We've gone through this first letter he wrote, and we're in kind of the beginning slash middle of the second letter. So that's where we're at, and we'll catch you up more as we go. But if you have a Bible, you can turn to Second Thessalonians. If you don't, it'll be on the screen. I'm going to read, again, all of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, and then we'll pray that the Lord would be our teacher. And we'll study this passage together. It's a longer passage, uh, so do your best to stay with me as I read. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, continuing into chapter 2. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to Him, 
We ask you, brothers, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or by a spoken word or by a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so he, that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearing of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Again, I invite you to bow with me in prayer as we ask for the Lord's help as we study his word. Heavenly Father, with this passage in front of us, I, I take some comfort in something that the Apostle Peter wrote of Paul's letters. Second Peter, we read of Peter saying of Paul's letters that some things that Paul writes are hard to understand. I think this letter is one of them, and this section of this letter might be one of those things. And yet, there are things that are clear, and those things that are clear are very hopeful, very encouraging. And so I pray now for your help to share your word with your people to encourage our hearts in what is clear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the main point from last week's passage, whether you're here or not, I'll just tell you what it was. The main point from last week's passage was that relentless suffering can make your mind go to dark places. It just does. But what we also saw in that passage was that into the darkness of relentless suffering, Paul shines the hope of the second coming. Jesus is coming again. As Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 10, Jesus is coming again to, quote, be glorified in his saints. In other words, it's good news for his people. Now, each Tuesday, I don't know whether all of you knew this or many of you even knew this, but each Tuesday afternoon, a few of us gather and we debrief last week's sermon. <laughs> it's kind of like on football when, you know, you see the commentator drawing X's and O's over all sorts of plays. We do that a little bit with the sermons. They're printed there in front of us and we talk about what was working well and what was, shall we say, not working as well. And ordinarily, we're just trying to build within us this culture of feedback and that it's so important, uh, the teaching of God's word, that it's worth taking time to debrief how it went and how it could 
in the future go better. Now, ordinarily, the things that we take away from those things as preachers are just things that we will, as it works out, bring in to future passages. But I felt like as we discussed things this last week, there were things that were said that were not necessarily wrong at all. But there was more that could have been said. And so what I want to do is go say some of that more. (laughs) And we don't ever, I should say, rarely do this. But I want to go back a little bit into chapter 1 to set a little bit more before us that I think would be helpful to you and I as we try and follow God well. So with that in mind, look with me at verse 6 of chapter 1. Verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul says something significant about the context of what he was writing there in chapter 1. We read this, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So in this verse, well actually after that verse, for the next three, four verses, Paul goes on to say very challenging things about the fate of those who do not know God. He says very challenging things about those who are committing persecution and affliction on God's people, namely this church in Thessalonica. And so Paul is, in a sense, encouraging these believers, um, what's going to happen to those who are committing these persecutions against them? Now, as I preached the passage, one of the things I did was put suffering sort of in this big bucket and treated it all as one thing. So whether it was suffering from some sort of physical ailment, like cancer, or whether it was some sort of life predicament, like the loss of a job, or whether it was perhaps even a mild form of persecution, like you're reading your Bible in the break room at work, and now people don't want to be your friend. I put all of that in one big bucket. And I still would defend the right to do that for at least these two reasons. One of them is this. That the result of suffering, however it initiates and however it um, is, uh, comes into our life, one of the main results is the same. It can take our mind and hearts to dark places. We wonder, do I have cancer because I'm living the Christian life wrong? Or we wonder, did I lose my job because God doesn't see, doesn't know, doesn't care? These are the things we wonder. However the suffering comes into our life. And I also lumped it together because the result, or excuse me, the hope, the way out of suffering, maybe not the physical predicament itself, but the hope for the Christian to rise up out of that is to view the joy of the second coming, that Jesus is coming again and he will make all things right. So however the suffering begins, for whatever reason, it causes us to think dark things about God and ourselves and our hope in the gospel. And the result is, or the, 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 the hope then to bring in our lives is to reflect on the second coming. Now all of that's still true. But during the sermon debrief, it was brought up, and I think this was so helpful, we're spending more time on it, that there is one additional element of a particular kind of suffering that's not common to all suffering. And that is in the context of persecution, There's often the desire for vengeance. If I get cancer, I might go to a spiritually dark place, but I won't necessarily want to take vengeance on anyone. But if my son was beaten and thrown into jail because he's a Christian, then I might be tempted to take vengeance, right? Earlier this summer as I was preaching a sermon, I told at the end of that sermon a story of my friend Kyle. Kyle was... Tragically killed in an avalanche in Colorado 
He was a good friend of mine, a deeply committed Christian, and I had to speak at his funeral. And, and right there, to not here, but right there, Maria, his fiancée, who he was to marry in two weeks, sat on the front, wo- front row and wept as I spoke. And that situation tempted me to go to a dark place spiritually. But I didn't really need to feel the desire to take vengeance on him. But you, you don't take vengeance on a mountain or snow. But let me tell you this part of the story. A local news program in Colorado covered the story and with the news reporters at the foot of the mountain as things were developing, as there was this search and whatnot, and the reporter interviewed various people, law enforcement officials, search and rescue crews, and even an avalanche expert. And all the while in the background, so I'm in Columbia, Missouri, I'm sitting there looking at the computer, it's an internet link, and I'm watching uh, the thing in delay, but I'm watching this report, and in the background of the footage, you can see the two other men who survived. And you can see Maria, Kyle's fiance, weeping on one of their shoulders. And as I watch this report, I remember this avalanche expert. I remember thinking that Everything about this avalanche expert smacked of smugness. It's like he's, he's talking, he's talking about avalanches and how they happen and why they happen. But really what he's saying is, look at me, I'm on TV. And I can tell you this, that I wanted to take my hands and put them into my laptop screen and grab him by the collar and shake him and say, look over your shoulder. Are you going to talk like that to her? Thankfully, technology doesn't allow that kind of interaction. Um, But do you see where I'm going with this? Now, that wasn't persecution in the classical sense. It was actually fairly unchristian of me. But think how this plays out in this church in Thessalonica, who is experiencing persecution. We don't know exactly what form their persecution took, but as they were excluded from society, as they were beaten, as some of them were placed in jail. We read in Acts chapter 17 when Paul was there, some of them were beaten. So we don't know exactly the specifics, how this continued to play out. It seems from details that things only ratcheted up. But this little bunch of Christians knew in their faith, they're wondering, does God watch? Is he watching? Does he know? Does he care? And through his letter, the Apostle Paul, he's placing his hands on their shoulders and he's looking them in the eyes and he says, I love you and God loves you and he cares for you and he, he will deal with them. He will take care of them. Right now, you need to know that God loves you. In other words, you don't have to take vengeance is what Paul is saying in chapter 1. He will repay those who afflict you, verse 6. Let me read a few verses from Romans chapter 12. Paul says a very similar thing to another church. Chapter 12 of Romans, verse 19, 20, and 21, we read this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, quoting the Old Testament, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, through 11 chapters of the book of Romans, he then ends here, or not ends, but he comes to this place in chapter 12 where he can speak to Christians and say, as those who have in the gospel been, had your own evil overcome with God's goodness, do the same for others. We've heard the phrase, killing someone with kindness in some ways. And that's what Paul's saying here. Very picturesque, he's saying, leave room for the wrath of God. So this, this, this like, it, it's sort of inviting us to think, okay, if I leap in, there's not room for God's wrath. Like, the, the, the picture here is of a Christian, Christian should draw back and say, that's yours, Lord. Because I trust you, because you're good to me. I don't need to leap in and reach my hands into the laptop. I don't have to take my pound of flesh. I can leave room for your wrath. I don't have to send that nasty email. I don't have to send that tweet or respond that way on Facebook. Lord, that's yours. You've got it. You see. You know. I think that's what Paul was writing to those believers. And I think he's saying the same to us. Maybe there's someone here who needed to hear that. So if that's what we're to neglect the taking of vengeance. What are we to do positively? In some ways, this passage doesn't say, but I think we do know what we should do positively. We should do evangelism and and share the good news of the gospel. I'll explain. So often when two of my children are in an argument, one of them will want to tell me what their sibling did to them. That sound familiar? Sound familiar in the office? <laughs> in the workplace? Sound familiar with extended family? Hey, what about him? You know what that guy did? Right? Well, what Paul's doing in chapter 1 is he's looking at the Thessalonians and saying, God will deal with them. God will deal with them. And I think that's often a good parenting approach. I, I know what happened over there, but I'm talking to you right now. But I want you to for imagine with me once, we don't have here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 what Paul would have said. So like, if these people over here are doing the persecution, he's talking to us about them. What would it have looked like to actually speak to them? Like, how would Paul have done that? I think it's helpful to think about, and we don't have that in First Thessalonians, but what we have, well, let me say this. Could we imagine the Apostle Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, saying, just give me five minutes and alone, alone in a room with them. I will teach them about the vengeance of God, right? Like, Can you imagine Paul saying something like that? I can imagine Paul thinking something like that because he was Paul, not Jesus, but full of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing these letters to the church. He didn't write something like that. We actually have something very different. The story of the early church in the book of Acts, we read several instances where Paul speaks to those who are persecuting him. In fact, actually holding him in jail. I want to read just a section of one of those letters you mean that story and then Paul's testimony while he's on defense. So in Acts chapter 26, Paul's being drug around and kind of going up the food chain through Roman officials. And he's there because he's a Christian and he won't deny following Jesus. And he was trying to tell other people about Jesus and that's causing problems. And so he's there and he's speaking to a man named King Agrippa and Festus. And I'm cutting out of most, most of the speech, which was his own story of conversion. And then we pick up in verse 24 this 
And as he was saying these things, that is, as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus, this official, said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. What does Paul say? I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words For the king knows about these things. The king had a Jewish background and was aware of these things. And I, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. So in other words, the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus was not done in some obscure part of Jerusalem or or Israel. It was was a big deal. People know we're talking about it. You know about it. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And King Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? Verse 29, and Paul said to those who were keeping him in prison, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains. In other words, yeah, I want you to become a Christian. I think Paul knew something about the forgiveness he received as one who persecuted the church, right? Like, I've been where you've been, Grippa. I've been where you've been, Festus. I know what it means to lock people up and throw them in jail. And there's forgiveness in Christ. See how this relates to Thessalonians? Because God is going to judge the world, and because we as Christians have been saved from his wrath, then we should be those who tell others how they can be free from God's wrath. That's what Paul would want us to know this morning. I never go back usually. I just try and incorporate whatever feedback comes out of a sermon debrief for the future. But I felt like those were weighty enough and hope helpful enough to re-preach a few of those things. Now we're going to go forward. Now I don't have a 30-minute sermon plan from this point on. (laughs) But there still is a little bit of a sermon left. So we're going to look into chapter 2 now. The impediment to the gospel in chapter 1 was physical persecution. The impediment to the gospel in chapter 2 is an intellectual one. They have struggles about the return of Jesus. Now this sounds bizarre to us, and maybe even some of the passage details will seem bizarre to you anyway. As soon as Christians start talking about the end times, your bizarre kind of Geiger counter goes up no matter what. But but, but, so Paul is going to talk about the end times, but... In particular, I would even say their view of what they heard about the end times or were hoodwinked into believing about the end times was bizarre. They were told wrongly that the Lord's return had already happened. That's strange to us, but let's read what the Apostle Paul speaks to them. Verses 1 through 7. It's a big chunk, but let me reread it. Paul writes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, now that now concerning tends to imply that he heard they're asking about it, so he's trying to be helpful as their pastor, apostle. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, things I've written about, we ask you brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, excuse me, <clears throat> not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, 
For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction. Just a quick parenthesis. Man of lawlessness, he's going to use that phrase a couple times. I think this is akin to what a few of the other New Testament authors use as language for the Antichrist, which is, again, end times type things that Christians talk about. Sometimes the Bible speaks to it, but it, it seems to communicate at the end of time there will be a greater manifestation of evil localized in one person who seems to lead some astray. So that's what that is. Paul here calls him the man of lawlessness. Verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you about these things? Do you not know what is, or do you not know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So in other words, whatever is going to happen at the end of time, it seems to already be seeping in. The seeds of lawlessness are already growing and will sprout into more later. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now, what's going on? Well, one thing is that we can learn from this that false teachers had influenced the church Perhaps even through writing a a fake letter purportedly from Paul. So they got together and said, let's write a letter, deceive these Christians, and we'll put Paul's name on it, send it as though Paul had written it that the day of the Lord had come. Now that's kind of weird to us, at least I'll confess it's kind of strange to me. How could they have missed this climactic thing? You know, we've been talking about the the sermon series. It's called When the Trumpet Sounds. It's a big deal. No one's going to miss this, but somehow they were worried they missed it. But Ben and I, as we were talking about this sermon and this passage, we reflected on that for most Christians who have been a Christian for any length of time they have some story in their past that they can look back on where they heard some bizarre teaching about the end times and they were troubled by it and most Christians have one of those stories I have at least one and I'll tell you that now (laughs) so I'm in college and I'm sitting in my dorm room or not my room another friend's room and uh Jay is there, as well as my friend Josh. And I had recently started following Christ and reading my Bible, and these guys seemed, Josh and Jay, seemed like good Christian brothers to hang around with because they were so mature. If I'd been following Christ like five minutes, they had like eight minutes on me. Like really mature brothers in Christ. And uh, so Jay says to us, eyes wide, right? So I was listening to this preacher on the radio and he seems super legit and he's preaching from the book of Revelation and he's talked about how in John's vision in the end times there's these flying grasshopper things and those are totally helicopters, military helicopters. That's crazy, right? We're like, yeah, man, that's crazy. And then Josh says, and he's a preacher, he's getting on all the details and then he looks at us and he says, and a third of the world is going to die soon. Right. And there's three of us in the room. <laughs> and I'm thinking, so like, am I in the two thirds or the one third? This is not clear. I'm, okay, you're laughing now. It was not funny at the time. <laughs> Perhaps you have a story like that, maybe not exactly like that. 
I remember it was a younger pastor, and at my former church, this well-meaning, well-meaning woman brings a stack of books into the church on a Sunday and dumps them on the welcome table. Here, these are free. I don't want them anymore type of things. And I'm looking at them, and okay, here's The Late Great Planet Earth, which is a book notoriously, uh, notorious for being unhelpful in stirring alarm about the end times. That's all I'll say about that book. But I uh, looked through the books and took that book and hid it <laughs> and left the others not to not be rude. But in a serious way, I do want to say fear is a strange thing. It can oftentimes feel irrational. Think of the many times we become afraid of some event, scenario, conversation uh, that, that never materializes. And yet we're deeply troubled by it. Maybe even there's physical manifestations of this inward anxiety. And think of the way fear can be contagious, infectious even. In the Old Testament, there's this story of ten people, ten people, who persuaded the rest of the people of God not to go into the promised land because they were afraid. And that fear swept through the people of God to tragic consequences. And confusion about the end times can certainly lead to unnecessary fear. However, Paul's point in this passage as we get into chapter 2 is that knowing the truth about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ should kill fear. That's Paul's point. So if being grounded in the truth about the return of Christ and loving the truth about the return of Christ is what kills fear, then knowing the truth about the return of Christ should be really, really important. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2. Paul writes, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? I can hear a little bit of a parental condescension here. Um, uh, I don't know. He he loves them dearly, but come on, guys. (laughs) Verse 6, And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Now, Paul calls them back to earlier instruction. You know the truth. I taught you. What's interesting though here is that in our day, some of the things that were apparently very clear to them are not very clear to us. I've done a lot of study on this passage and to be candid, there are things I still don't know the answer to. I even listened to a few sermons on this passage last week by three heroes of mine, theological giants at least, to me, and in some point in each one of their sermons, they said, there are some details in here I don't know. So, for example, the passage speaks of the man of lawlessness being revealed at the end of time and setting himself up as God in, quote, the temple of God. I don't mean to be silly, but what is the temple of God? Was it the Jewish temple that was destroyed in AD 70? So like there's this Jewish temple that gets rebuilt and it's around at the time Paul writes this letter. But then the Romans come into Jerusalem, surround it. They get called away. They come back. It's done. Destroy the temple, 70 AD. So as we read this now, should we anticipate that one day the Jewish people will rebuild their temple? Some people think that. Others note that Paul uses the phrase the temple of God 
in several places in his other letters to refer to the Christian church. We're the temple of God. There's not a physical building or structure, but as God dwells with his people in the way he dwelt in the temple, you and I, if we're in Christ, we're the temple of God. So is what Paul's saying here about the man of lawlessness sitting himself up in the temple of God, is he saying that somehow in a very sneaky, sad, tragic way, the man of lawlessness will arise within the Christian church? I don't know. Not to make it more difficult, but sometimes the Bible speaks of a heavenly temple, as it does in the last chapters of the book of Ezekiel or the book of Revelation or even the book of Hebrews. So what is the temple of God? I don't know. Also, there's the statement here about the man of lawlessness being restrained. Paul actually says, you know who is restraining him. What's interesting is, I don't know. <laughs> One commentary said, here are three options. Another commentary said, here are seven. Maybe it's the preaching of the church that restrains the man of lawlessness from arriving. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit working among the church. Maybe it's a particular angel. Michael has said in other passages, this larger kind of significant archangel who does some restraining in the book of Revelation. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit or God just more generally. Maybe it's the Roman Empire. Maybe it's Satan himself who's keeping back his lawless one so that he can reveal him at the right time. We don't know. But... For all the things we don't know about the passage, there are some things that are crystal clear. And I believe both of them, and I'm going to finish the sermon, these two points. The two things that are crystal clear from this passage, I believe, give believers hope. And they should cause us not to be quickly alarmed, as Paul says in this passage. He's writing so that we would not be kind of worried and confused and scared, but rather hopeful. The first thing that's crystal clear is the return of Christ may linger. It might be a while before Christ returns. Paul encourages them that they have not missed the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is going to be preceded by two things, a rebellion and this rebellion led by this leader of the rebellion, this man of lawlessness. And if you haven't missed those two other things, then you haven't missed the end times. In other words, it might be a while. The delay of the return of Christ is consistent with what we read in other passages in the New Testament. Even Jesus himself, he taught a parable once about his return. And the the, the crux of that parable turns on the fact that Jesus will be a while in coming. So he tells this parable about a a wedding and and, and the groom goes away and they're waiting for him. And some people take their little candles and, and they don't have enough oil. And so like they run out. But those who benefit from the return of the groom, because he takes a while, were those who went and got more oil, and they're like, hey, this could be a while, so we're going to wait. And they're the ones who receive the benefit. Because Jesus is saying, I I might be a while when I come back. Look at what Paul wrote to a young pastor, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Nothing per se to do with the end times, but it relates to what we're talking about here. This is some 25 years later after he wrote 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. He writes to this young pastor, You then, my child, Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me. So, Timothy, what you heard me say, in the presence of many witnesses, you now entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What does that have to do with anything? What does all that imply? Time. Timothy, go to churches and set up discipleship programs because Jesus isn't coming back five minutes from now. 
What you do is you roll up your sleeves and you prepare for the Lord's coming by training people up in the gospel who can then train others up in the gospel. So be about the Lord's work because he might linger. So don't be alarmed, Paul writes, if some angel materializes himself to you and he says, Jesus is coming in five minutes, don't believe it. If an elder in your church stands up and preaches sermons that says, you've missed the return of the Lord, don't believe it. If someone fakes a letter in my name and says, you missed the return of Christ, don't believe it. And though the return of Christ may linger, what I want to focus on in the end for just two, three minutes is that his victory is sure. I just want to give you permission here for a moment to be excitable. (laughs) You have my permission for a few minutes to just be excited about the return of Christ. Look with me at verse 8. This is the main thing I want to say. All the 35 minutes to journey with with me to the last five is to say this, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. So whatever was straining it will be gone. And then Paul writes, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Paul is here drawing from an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, one actually that I taught last Advent season, last December here at our church. It comes from Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4, which is written some 700 years before Jesus, trying to encourage God's people. And I think it should still encourage God's people. In Isaiah eleven four, we read this. But with righteousness, the Messiah shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, the Messiah will kill the wicked. It was good news to an oppressed people in Israel's day and our own day. Enormous amounts of money and time and energy and lives are spent keeping wickedness at bay. Think of the laws we passed and the officers who tried their best to enforce them. Think of our military and the battles we fight. So much energy, so much effort, so much loss of life. And how great is the Messiah? This great, that when he comes, he will topple evil the way I could stack up dominoes and blow them over effortless. There is a pop culture kind of folk religious, pseudo-Christian belief that is pervasive today. And it says that in this world, there are good, there's good and there's evil, and they're in a war. That much is true. There's good and there's evil, and they're in a war. But here's the lie. The lie is that good and evil are in a war, and that God and Satan are are pretty much equals in strength. And we don't know, in fact, we can't know who will win. So what we should do is just cross our fingers and hope for the best and wish upon a star and try really hard and vote for the right candidate and maybe, just maybe, things will be okay. No. No, church. 
God is a warrior, and the enemies of God are not the equal of God. Right now, God the Father sits on the throne of the universe. And we read about this in Psalm 110 and Mark chapter 12, that he says to his son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. In Matthew chapter 28, this last passage in the last part of Jesus' gospel, before Jesus goes back to heaven, he looks in his disciples' eyes and he says to them, All authority in heaven has been given to me. Christians, lift up your heads. Do not be afraid. Do not be fearful. Jesus is so wonderful that he can destroy evil with the breath of his mouth. Some of you have had unspeakably cruel things happen to you. And there are all sorts of ways as your pastor, I would want to be helpful to you. I would want to minister to you. If you would ever want to talk about it, my door is always open. I could just weep with you. Or I could look you in the eyes and say, I'm so sorry someone did that to you. I'm so sorry someone did that to your child. I can do that. I will do that. I have done that. But also, I would hope to minister to you by telling you to lift up your head, by reminding you of the reality that in Jesus, we do not have a tame, domesticated house pet. We have, as the Bible says, the lion from the tribe of Judah. It's okay to be excited. 500 years ago, in a very dark time in church history, A Christian wrote a hymn that we still sing today, and we're going to close by singing this morning. The lyrics of this hymn go like this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, which is where I took the title for the sermon. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. The one little word, as you study this out, that will fell Satan, according to that song. And the lawless one is the word liar. His miracles are counterfeit. We read in the passage. His appearing... The appearing of the lawless one, it's really just a parody of the appearing of Jesus. The lawless one sets himself up as God, and Jesus is God. The Satan rage, his doom is sure, as the love of God for his children is sure. Lift up your heads. Lift up your heads. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, there would be Many things in our church that would conspire to cause us to be alarmed and fearful. Perhaps it's a form of suffering through a physical affliction. Or perhaps there's a form of persecution that's taken place. Perhaps it's just a spiritual malaise that is settled in our hearts that causes us to be apathetic to the gospel. I pray, like smelling salts, salts that this passage would waken us to the beauty of the return of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it would give us hope. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name.